Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, hey guys, uh, good morning. Thank you so much for coming out, hanging out with us today. My name's Byron. I get the privilege each and every week to serve as the lead pastor, church planter here at Redemption. If you're a guest, I wanna say thank you so much for gathering with us today. I really mean that. Um, we love you, and we, we're just so happy to have you. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Titus. That's where we're working at. We're in a series um, walking through the book of Titus, verse by verse, um, taking a look at what it means for us to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. Titus is a small book. It's in the back of your Bible, so you can kind of start at the back, and you can work your way forward, and then you will find the book of Titus. So while you're finding that, let me go ahead, open up in prayer, and then we're going to get to work. Um, well, let me say this before we pray, okay? Um, typically, what you see is you see me preaching, right? And I'm kind of waving my arms around. I'm kind of yelling, uh, making, and I'm talking about you. But today is a special day because you get to hear me yell at myself. Um, today, what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about the qualifications of a pastor, the qualifications of a pastor, an elder, someone who leads the church. And so in every single way, this is a sermon to myself, and I invite you to listen in on uh, now, with that being said, also, I don't want you to think, um, <clears throat> well, this is about being a pastor, this is about being a leader, that's not me, so I can just tune out for the rest of the gathering, and don't do that, because this has everything to do with you, because the, the responsibilities that, that Paul enlists here to finding a good, godly, mature leader is the same qualifications that we all have as mature Christians, that's all it is. So while we may have different roles, you and I, we all have the same responsibility, and that is to lead other people to Jesus for his good glory and for the good of others. So with that being said, let's pray, and then we'll get to work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, that you sent Jesus to live as we never could, to die in our place and give us new life. Lord, that you also give us the Holy Spirit, and that you also give us a church, people to work out our, our holiness with you, to be able to point one another to your good name. Lord, we pray for this church and all the people who, who make it possible. We pray that you would give us godly convictions, Lord, that you would build in us good character, and God, that you would work in us before you work through us. We pray that these words would bless people, that they would inspire others to pursue after you, that you would be the center of their lives in all that they do. And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I have the best job in the world. I do. I have the best job in the whole world. I love it. I get to do the one thing that I think about all week, right, which is to be able to teach Jesus and preach the Bible. I love my job. Seriously, thank you so much for giving me the privilege to be able to stand here on this stage downtown and be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the city. I love my job. Everything about it. And I, I love my church. I love this church. I love seeing what it is that Jesus is doing in your life. I love seeing people meet Jesus. I love seeing people get baptized. I love seeing people meet in their homes, reading their Bibles, praying for one another, eating meals. 
I love to see the kiddos running around upstairs. I love to see everything that Jesus is doing in your life, in your family, with your friends, and for your future. It's absolutely amazing. And every single week, God keeps bringing new people into the church so that way we can become family together with him. And it's, it's amazing. And the good news is, this is just the beginning. I love my job. I probably have the best job in the world, but there's always a but. But I also have probably one of the, the worst jobs in the world. See, being a pastor, some people think, oh, all you do is, you know, take people out for lunch and then preach for an hour on Sunday. Like, no, that's not all I do. All I, I don't just read and pray and go out to eat. Like, that's, there's a lot more that happens with the job of a pastor that people don't see. It's a, it's a demanding job. It demands a lot of my time. It demands a lot of my energy. It demands a lot of my heart. It's a joyful, painful opportunity to be able to serve God's people. It is. And, and, and so when you think of a pastor, what, what you should think of him, um, if you want a good illustration, is like an iceberg, okay? So I got a nice little graphic for you. Throw that up there. Um, there's a lot more to me than what you see. There's a lot more happening in the life of a pastor than what people recognize. So a pastor is kind of like an iceberg, right? So you got the little bit on top that people recognize. That's what you see. But there's a whole lot happening underneath in the life and the character and the health of a pastor. So what you see typically is 20% of my life. You might see me running around during setup looking like a crazy person. Um, you might see me preaching on the stage. You might see me um, over coffee in a meeting. You might see me after the gathering shaking hands. That's kind of what you see. But underneath it, there's a lot more happening. See, I I'm a father. I'm a husband. Right? I'm, I'm a brother. I'm a grandson. So I have family responsibilities. In addition to that, there's the ministry responsibilities. Prayer, preaching, prepping, practice. Now, all the work that goes in to be able to handle God's word. And then beneath that, there's the people that I'm, I'm called to love and steward and shepherd and serve. And so you got meetings and appointments and there's counseling and there's problems and grief and heartache. And underneath all of this, this is what God uses to build the character of the man that he's called to preach. And so this is very important because if the pastor's like an iceberg, we can think of the church like a ship. Okay, and getting the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time and does the wrong thing, it can sink the entire ship. And, and the problem is, is that there are souls on that ship. And so it's very important for us to get the right man for the right job, for the right people. And, and, and so as American culture continues to trend increasingly post-Christian, and the American church is trying to figure out what happens next, the American pastors aren't doing well. There's a, there's a lot of study in the last 20 years looking at the life and the health and the vitality of pastors, and what they've discovered is that the life of the pastor is not going very well. So here's a little section. I call it the confessions of a pastor. I did some research this week, and here's just some statistics that I found um, about what's happening for the men that God's called to chose, God's chosen to lead. 75% report being extremely stressed. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 90% work between 55 and 75 hours per week. 70% say they are grossly underpaid. 85% have never taken a vacation. And this is interesting. The reason why they don't take a vacation is one, because they can't afford to, and two, because there's no one they can trust to lead the church while they're gone. There's more. Go to the next slide. 
80% will not be in ministry in 10 years. Think about that. 80% of pastors will no longer be in ministry in the next 10 years. 80% of ministry spouses feel underappreciated. 44% of pastors don't take a regular day off, even though the Bible tells us to Sabbath. And then 70% do not have someone that they consider to be a close friend. This comes from the Francis Schaeffer's Institute of Church Leadership. So what we can see is that pastors aren't doing well. And here's the truth, is that as the pastor goes, the church goes. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So this is important for all of us, not just me, but for all of us. And we know that your pastors, they love you, they serve you, they care for you, they pray for you. But here's a question. Who prays for the pastor? We need to be in prayer for our pastors because they're the ones who on the day of judgment are gonna hold our souls and give an account for our lives. See, you understand, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the pastor and the pastor on the day of judgment is not only responsible for my life, but I'm also responsible for the life of those who are in my church to care and to love and to steward and to shepherd so that way you grow in your faith and in your abilities to follow Jesus and center your life on him that I'm not just responsible for me, I'm also responsible for this church. And, and I remember being a young Christian when God called me into ministry. I was, I was 22 years old. I had just got married. I was dirt broke, living in a crappy apartment and working a job, college full-time, never made more than $20,000 a year. And God called me into ministry and said, uh, yeah, no thanks. Right? That sounds like, that sounds terrible, right? Even me, 22, I'm like, I, I don't want, I don't want that. And think about it, how many of you guys get your job descriptions from the Bible? How many of you guys walk into an interview and the guy goes up to you, pulls it out and says, okay, um, here's your job description, the Bible, <laughs> right? And you're like, uh, that's, that's a little over my pay grade. Um, how many of you, you know, wait tables, work in a, a plant, and, and the guy comes in and he says, hey, you know what? Uh, do you know Jesus? Like, yeah. And he's like, well, he's, this is all his organization, and you're in charge until he comes back. Good luck. You're like, oh man, I don't know. That's a lot of responsibility. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Um, and, 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 that's, and that's why the big idea is that it's so important for us to get the right guy for the job. Because he's, he's leading and serving and shepherding and stewarding God's people to accomplish God's purpose. If, if, if the church is the visible manifestation of the glory of God in this city, for this world, for his glory, and for the good of others, then it's extremely important that we make sure that we get the right people in the right places so that way we can accomplish the mission of God, both home and abroad. And this is why it's so important that, that Paul says this is the first thing to Titus, to get the right people. Titus is a young church planter in a city wanting to lead as many people to Jesus as possible. And Titus says, first, get the leaders. You got to find the right men and the right women to put them in leadership and get a godly man to come in and to serve as the pastor. This is what Paul writes to Titus. He says in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might remain, to, you might put what remained into order. So Paul plants the church in Crete, leaves Titus to serve as the pastor. Paul then leaves, Titus serves as the pastor, and the church goes well for a while. Everything's going great. New people meeting Jesus, lots of young believers. There's people being baptized. People are passionate and excited about what God is doing. 
But somehow, somewhere along the line, the church had lost its direction. And as it lost its direction, it became confused on things like doctrine and sound teaching and what it is that God had purposed for their life. And so as they're losing their direction and losing their passion, Titus is trying to make sense out of it all. And then he receives a letter from his pastor, a man named Paul, giving him good news, gospel instruction on how to bring this church out of chaos and into order, how to live as a church for God's glory and the good of others. And so this book is a small book, but it's a very profound book that it has major implications on who we are and how we live and what God has called us to be as a church. This has implications not just for us as a church corporately, but also for you as the church individually, in your faith, in your family, and in the future. This word is very important. So it's, it's necessary for us to lean in, to listen, and to learn from Paul's words to this young man named Titus. And this is what Paul says when he says, looking for a pastor, there's four things you need to look for in a mature, godly leader. First, you need to look for his commitments. Then you need to look at his conducts, then his character. And then lastly, you need to consider his convictions. So those are the four things we're going to be walking through and what it looks like to be a good leader. All right, and this is the first thing that he says. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. All right, let's pause right there. Um, the Bible uses a lot of words when it talks about a pastor. Sometimes it uses the word pastor. Sometimes it uses the word overseer. Sometimes it uses the word bishop. And sometimes it uses the word elder, okay? The word here is elder. Now, elder doesn't mean old, okay? It doesn't mean gray hair. It doesn't mean wrinkles. That's not what an elder means. An elder means a mature believer in faith. That's what an elder is. And so um, it's a mature believer that God has called that God has appointed, and that has been laid hands on and commissioned by the other leaders in the church to serve as the pastor, okay? So he's got to be mature in faith, be commissioned and appointed and called by God to serve as the church. That is what an elder is, okay? And so let's keep going on. Every town, as I directed, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So Paul is going to talk about what we look for when we go for a good leader. When we're looking for a mature believer, when we're looking for a pastor, and the first thing that he says is a pastor must be committed to the church. Right? That one you think, that one's pretty given, right? You got to know, does he love the church? Does he love the church? Does he serve the church? Does he give to the church? Does he want to see the church grow? Does he want to see people disciple? Does he want to see people meet Jesus? Because if he's not committed to that, then he's not called, right? And so, so Jesus said, I will build my church. It's Jesus's church. And Jesus is the one who builds the church. So you can think of the pastor kind of like the, the, the foreman on the building project of the kingdom of God to a specific place for a specific people. But it's Jesus's church. And I say this before we go any further in, in, in this sermon, I want you to understand something. I am not the senior pastor of redemption. Who's our senior pastor? Jesus. Jesus is our senior pastor. So me, my job is to take my cues from him. Say, okay, Jesus, what are you saying? All right, God, that's where we're going to go. All right, Jesus, what are you doing? All right, that's what you want us to do. All right, Jesus, what are you trying to show me? Okay, God, that's, that's where we're, we're going. My job is to follow Jesus. Your job is to follow Jesus, and we do that together as a church. 
Jesus is our pastor, I'm the under-shepherd, and together we're a community on mission for the glory of God and the good of the others. And so you think, um, okay, so he's got to be committed to the church. Me and you, I'm committed to you. You get all of me. You get my heart, you get my devotion, you get my prayers, like you get me. And so if you call redemption home, for better or worse, we're stuck together. Okay, so, so I'm going to give you all that I got, and I want you to love, serve, and follow Jesus with all that you have. So am I committed to this church? Don't sound so enthused. Yes, am I committed? Yes. Okay, good. Check. Got that one. Moving on. All right, next he says, they needs to be committed to others. Paul wants to know, is the guy that I'm going to get on the stage preaching and handling God's word every single week, is that someone that other people can look up to? Is it someone that their testimony of their life is going to bring fame to the name of Jesus, or is it going to bring shame to the name of Jesus? That's what we're looking for, someone who is committed to others. I'm going to let you in on a secret that I learned um, a long time ago, and I think it would be beneficial for a lot of you guys, especially you young ones. All right, here it is. Um, People are everywhere. Crazy, right? I know, it's true. People are everywhere. And the second is, they're always watching. Always, especially today as we live in a digital age where everyone's connected with social media. You got an iPhone in your pocket, the internet in the palm of your hand, and everybody has cameras. So no longer is what you say, what you think, what you do just between you and God, as it should be. Um, It's also available online for everyone forever, forever, okay? And and so here's how you, you live above reproach. That's the text, above reproach. You ready? Have a boring testimony. That's it. Have a boring testimony. Go to work, come home, kiss your wife, read the Bible. That's it. Have a boring testimony for the glory of God and for the good of, of others. And for, and for God's sake, stay off of Facebook. Just, just stay off of Facebook. Some of you are like, well, I'm not on Facebook. No, but you're on Snapchat, and that's worse. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it. And really, that, that's kind of why I've pulled back from a lot of the social media is because um, it, it makes it hard to love people sometimes. Uh, it does. It really does. And I want to love you. I do. And, and so um, if you must be on social media and you have to have a presence, I'll give you two tips, okay? Bible verses and baby pictures. Like, if you post that, boring testimony above reproach, okay? And, and some of you, you know, you're like, okay. But you're going to push back and you say, well, this is just who I am. Well, who you are needs to change, true. Because if, if who you are is preventing other people from meeting Jesus, then who you are needs to change. Because here's, here's the reality, is Jesus doesn't love you for who you are. Jesus loves you for who he is, that he loved you in your sin, that he died for you for that sin, and then he saved you for his glory to overcome sin and temptation in your life. See, Jesus' death was for our change, that he gives us new natures, he gives us new desires, he gives us new purpose and new passion to follow him. If who you are is preventing other people from meeting Jesus, then you need to change or question whether or not you're still in the faith. Because if you are resistant to change in your life, you're resistant to the Holy Spirit working in you. Here's the truth. If you're going to be committed to others, first you must be committed to change. Let the Holy Spirit work in you so that he can work through you. That's what it means to be above reproach. As we go on to the next, he says, 
you need to know, is the guy committed to his wife? Like, does he love his wife? Me, I love Ashley. I love my wife. My wife is sweet. She is kind. She's the most intelligent, beautiful of all of God's daughters. She's amazing. I love her with everything that I have. And, and when, she, when we're, she's been particularly sweet, she, I call her my koala bear. She holds me, and she doesn't let go. I love it. And I want you to know, I have no problem choosing Ashley over you. I don't. <laughs> that one's just a no-brainer, okay? Because Ashley, uh, Ashley has the most important job in this church. She has to put up with me. And, and by God's grace, she's done it for 10 years, and she will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it another 50. I believe that. And, and so um, what Paul says is when you're looking for a mature believer, an elder, what you need to do is you need to find someone who loves his wife, who is devoted to, who is, cherishes her, who loves her, who gives his life for her, someone who, um, who treats her with dignity, equality, with respect, and honors her for who she is, a woman. That's what we look for in a leader. And, and guys, you need to know this, that there's a reason why God made women last. It's because he saves the best for last. He does. He does. And so that's what we look for. In the text here, it says, it says, a one-woman man. That's the actual translation. So this means he has eyes for, room in his heart for, only the capacity to love one woman for his entire life. He is wholly, physically, spiritually, sexually devoted to one woman for his entire life. And, and, and so you need, this does not mean that he can go around flirting with other women. He can have coarse joking with other women. He's not in um, affairs with other women. He doesn't look at porn, download it on his phone, disrespecting, demeaning other women, but that he is devoted to one woman for his entire life. That's what it means. Eyes for one woman. Now, other guys, don't think just because I'm not a pastor that I can go around demeaning, degrading, and demoralizing women. No. This is a word for all Christians, that we treat women with dignity, equality, and with respect. And that's what we look for. That's what we look for in a mature believer. And so, ladies, you need to know that if a guy, if you're looking for a husband, if a guy does not love Jesus, he cannot love you in the way you were designed to be loved. Because the marriage is about Jesus and his church, the way that Jesus loves his church, the way that Jesus died for his church, the way that Jesus serves his church, and the way that Jesus prepares a place for his church is the same way in which a man loves his wife. It's about Jesus and his church. And so if a man does not love Jesus nor his church, he can't love you the way that you were designed to be loved. So we need men and women who are committed to one another, wholly devoted to one another. That's what we look for, husband of one wife. And then he moves on. If you glorify your God in your marriage, it's good. It's very good. And that leads to children. That's a nice little segue. Maybe you didn't get it. it you'll catch that on the ride home, and you're going to laugh. <laughs> children. So does this mean that um, before Esther was born, I was not qualified to be your pastor? Right? No, that's not what it means. What it means is this, that marriage and that your family is your greatest ministry. That your family comes first. Marriage is your greatest ministry. Family is your greatest ministry. It goes like this. It goes wife, kids, church, work. 
That is the order of our lives. And beyond that, Jesus is at the center of all of it. And then the glory of God overflows into every other aspect. The Puritans used to say it like this. How can someone pastor the big church if they can't pastor the little church? You are the pastors of your homes. Parents, you are the pastors of your homes. Your children are going to learn how to read their Bible from you. Your children are going to learn who Jesus is because of you. Your parents are going to, your children are going to learn what it looks like to be a good husband, a good wife, a good father, a good mother from you. No one's going to disciple your kids for you. It's your responsibility. Invest well. You are the pastors of your home. See, we get your kids for maybe an hour or two hours a week. You get them for a lifetime. Invest in them. You're the pastor of your house. So Paul here is first talking about our commitments. And what you see now is from here, Paul is going to move in and he's going to start talking about our conduct. So you want to know, is this guy worth his salt? Right? Does he practice what he preaches? Does his beliefs line up with his behaviors? I mean, think about it. This is going to be the guy that holds your soul on the day of judgment and gives account for you. Like, you kind of want to know, like, is he the right guy? And he's going to be the one who dedicates your babies, who uh, performs your wedding, who performs the wedding for your kiddos. He's the one you come to in the most trying, difficult moments of all of your life. He's the one who's there for you in, in, when you lose a job, when you lose a child, when you are struggling financially. This is the guy you're going to come talk to. So you want to know, can I trust him? It's important, right? So this is what he's talking about. So the first, so this is what he says. He says, for an overseer, which is a pastor, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. All right, so for the first thing he says is he says, that the good conduct he needs is to be above reproach, right? This one's so important that not only did he mention it first, but he also mentioned it again, above reproach. Like, that's kind of a big deal. Just in case you didn't hear it the first time, he's saying it again. You need to be above reproach. The word here actually means not impeachable, that there's no charges of conduct or error that you can bring before him to be able to disqualify him. He must be a man who is not impeachable. And so the rest of these, Paul's going to flesh out what it looks like in different aspects for a godly mature believer to be not impeachable. The second thing he says is he's not to be arrogant. Okay. Okay. Now, pastors are some of the most arrogant people I've ever met. And I know a lot of pastors, and I say that because really it's an occupational hazard. It is that we're taught everywhere in life that the more competent you are, the more arrogant you are, the more swagger that you have, the more successful you'll be. That's what we're taught. And so it is an occupational hazard. But in the Bible, confidence, arrogance is not a virtue, but rather it's a vice. The Bible says that God opposes the proud and then he gives grace to the humble. As pastors, we're called to be humble. Like the only thing that I can brag in, the only thing that I can boast in is, 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 is Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins and the glory of God on display in the lives of his people. Like for me, that's the only thing that you should hear me brag about is the glory of God and the good of others. Now, this is something that I struggled with mightily. Whenever I moved here to get ready to start and plant Redemption Church, I knew that I was arrogant. In the Bible, do you know what it refers to a pastor? It calls us ox. Do you know what an ox is? An ox is a big, dumb beast. That's what an ox is. And in order for an ox to serve its purpose, it must be broken. So John Piper says, he says, how does God make a preacher? 
10,000 sorrows. A pastor must be broken before he can serve his purpose. And I knew this going in to plant this church. I knew I was arrogant. I was like, I know better. I I know we're going to do groups this way. We're going to plant this way. This is going to be our process of ministry. And I knew that I was arrogant. So here's what I did instead. I found a godly, older man who who pastored a church that was very small. And me and my wife went to him. We sat down with him and said, here's what we want to do. Can we serve at your church for one year? And we sat in obscurity at this small church for one year. And I didn't serve. I didn't preach. I didn't lead. I didn't do anything. You know what I did? I stood at the door and shook hands. I swept the floor. I, I mopped. I painted walls. I got kissed on the cheek by older women. I got the arrogance beaten out of me in obscurity. And you know what? I thank the Lord for that every day. That God does Pose the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. A pastor is to be arrogant, uh, is to not be arrogant. Next he says, not quick, quick-tempered. Like, so do you, do you freak out? Do you fly off the handle? Right? Do you overreact when someone says something to you that you don't agree with? Right? You can't just go around and just say what you want, when you want, and get people to do whatever and make people fearful. Like, you can't do that. And it's not going to be good for anyone for you to overreact. So here's one thing that the Lord's been working on me with. He's teaching me that I need to have thick skin and a soft heart. Because if you have thin skin and a hard heart, you get in a lot of trouble. A leader is not to be quick-tempered. We've got to be patient. We've got to be kind. We've got to be long-suffering. Think about it this way. Have you ever done things um, that offended God? Yes. It's called sin. Right? We've all done it. Did God still love you? Yes. Go therefore and do likewise. See, some people are easy to love. Other people, God brings into our life to teach us a lesson, and that is patience. A pastor is to not be quick-tempered. Next, he says, not a drunkard. I know some of you are like, bummer, right? Not, not a drunkard. You think this one's obvious, right? If, you're, if, if your accountability group is Jose Cuervo and Jack Daniels, like you're not in a very good place, right? Could you imagine if I, if I come into a counseling session, I'm like, hey, uh, Susie, how's it going? You're like, uh, my name's Tim. Like, uh, it's not going to be very good, right? You want a pastor who's like not slurring his speech. You want someone who like speaks in tongues, not in cursive, okay? Like, like you know, that's, that's what you're looking for. Okay? Uh, and so, um, now, does the Bible, is, is drinking a sin? No. I don't believe it is. There's many verses that, that talk about drinking. But is drunkenness sin? Yes. There are some things that are explicitly sin. Drunkenness, drug abuse, premarital sex, adultery. Those things disqualify a pastor. Those things are explicitly sin. Now, just because there's something that may not be sin doesn't mean it's smart. Okay? So, so it's not smart to drink for breakfast. Okay? It's not smart to drink in public. It's not smart to drink in front of your kids. It's not smart to drink in front of people who you know have a, a problem and you make them feel guilty and you make them feel tempted. Right? That's not smart. So while there may be some things that eh, may not be sin... That doesn't mean they're not stupid. 
Okay, so, so when it comes to this, as a leader, you lay down your rights so others can experience freedom in Christ. That's what a leader does. A leader knows the difference between sin and stupidity, and it chooses the wise words of the Lord. Not a drunkard. Next, he says, not violence, okay? And so, do you go around bossing people around? Are, are, you, are you a bully? If so, shame on you. As pastors, we have a unique opportunity to be able to build people up or tear people down. That I, I could use this Bible to, to, to beat you up or build you up. People tell us things in counseling, in meetings, that, that we could use to do a lot of harm. But as a pastor, what we're called to do is to encourage people in the gospel and then to point them to Jesus. We're not to be violent. We're not to abuse the position in people's lives that God has given us but rather we are to encourage and build one another up. And some of you know this because you've come from churches where all they did is, is just beat you up and tear you down and just make you feel like total garbage. Okay? So where there, is no, where there is no grace, where there is no mercy, where there is no redemption, where there is no hope, there is no gospel being preached. We are to build people up and to encourage one another. And then the next part, he says, for good conduct in the pastors, not greedy. Now some of you are like, aha, I got a verse. Pastor talking about money, right? They're all just greedy, money hungry. All they want is my money. Well, I would submit to you, you're probably thinking about your money more than me. Um, now, see, I, the verse, not greedy or a lover of money. See, I do love what money can do. I love what money can do. I love that, that your generosity and that money allows us to meet right here at the gig. I love that. Did you know that, like, they don't care how many people we baptize. Right? It's a business transaction, right? We, we give them money and they open the doors. That's how this works. So we have 3,000 reasons every month to be able to preach the gospel here. And I love that money allows us to do that. I love that money allows us to send missionaries all around the world to be able to serve others, and many of whom are in Muslim countries. I love that, that money allows us to do that. I, I love what that money allows us to build water filtration systems for villages in Haiti. You know, they can't drink your good thoughts, right? I love that money allows us to do that. Now, money is either a tool or it is an idol. You can either use money to love people or you can love money to use people. Sadly, some pastors do preach for greedy gain, for the wrong reasons. And typically, you'd see this on television and so you think, that's how pastors are. But in reality, most pastors are grossly underpaid for the job that they do. They don't do it for the money. They do it because of the people, that they love the people. When we were planting our church in Houston, there was another church planter um, outside of town that I heard about. And I was like, hey, let's get together. I want to hear your story. I want to know, you know what's going on in church. Maybe we can help one another. And so I met with him. We sat down at Tex-Mex restaurant, and we just started talking. He was sharing some of his struggles. I was sharing some of mine. And I asked him, I said, well, hey, does the church pay you? And I, I wanted to know because I wasn't getting paid either. So I was like, how did you do this? And so I asked him, does the church pay you? And he said, no. I said, well, how do you do what it is that you do? And I kid you not, this man told me that he stood on the side of the road, washed windows, collecting change to be able to provide for his family. This man standing on the side of the road, washing windows, and then he stands before his church on Sunday. Man, that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart. 
Do you know that I don't get paid at this church? Right? The church pays my rent, but I do this because I love you. In the last five years of serving as a church planter, I've never earned a paycheck. Right? So if I'm doing this for the money, I'm an idiot. (laughs) There's a lot of other ways that I could make money. I do it because I love you. I do it because I love this church. I do it because I love seeing what Jesus is doing in your life. And God's called me. He'll provide for me. I believe in that. Did you know? Did you know that Bo and JC, they don't get paid for doing what they do? Like, they're, they're, they're full-time volunteers. Not, not even full-time. They have full-time jobs, and they do this out of the love of their heart. Like, Bo leads worship. JC serves your kids. Bo's a single dad, has a full-time job. JC's in college. JC has a full-time job, and she still shows up and, and serves your kids every week. And, 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 and Shelby, who, who works with our pre-K ministry, um, she, she's a full-time college student. She waits tables. She gets off at 3 a.m. on a Saturday night, shows up here at 8 a.m. to be able to teach her kiddos about Jesus. And she's 19. So here's what I want to do. I want to pay them in compliments today. And so, so when you see them, go give them a hug. Let them know you're thankful for them. When was the last time you thanked them for what they do every single week? We do it because we love you. It's not for greedy gain, but it's for gospel glory. That's why we do what we do. So Paul moves here. He moves from conduct, and then he's going to begin to talk about our character, okay? So character matters. Character is important. You want to know, is this someone that you can look up to? Is this someone that you you look to and you say, that's someone that I want to be like one day. That's someone that I aspire to be like. That's someone that I I would like my, my sons to grow up to be like. That's someone that I would like my daughters to aspire to be like. Is this guy someone that you can look up to? He begins to talk about our character, and this is what he says. He says, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. All right, so the first one he says is hospitable. Okay, this does not mean that you get a key to my house, and you can call me anytime, and we're going to be best friends forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Right, that's not what it means. The average person can only sustain three meaningful relationships in their life, and there's a lot more of you than three. Um, And this is the reason why we have groups. Okay, so we want for you to get in a group to study your Bible, to eat together, to be able to pray for one another and to serve and to, and to follow Jesus together. We have groups. My wife and I, we are in a group and, and, and we love it and it's amazing. And so I'd encourage you, get in a group. But friendship is not necessarily discipleship, okay? Fellowship is not necessarily discipleship. It's an aspect of it. But the other aspect is hospitality. We think hospitality means having friends over. That's not what hospitality means. Here's what hospitality means. Welcoming the outsider. Hospitality is being around unbelievers and doing your best job to point them to Jesus. That's what hospitality means. And so here at Redemption, I have this unique um, opportunity problem uh, because we don't have offices. Like, we don't have a building. Okay, so most of the ministry happens out of my house. So people are passing through the doors of my home every single week. So when it comes to trying to do meetings or or study and prep, oftentimes I just go sit at a coffee shop. So I sit at a coffee shop, I get in the city, and it gives me opportunities to learn people's names, to listen to their stories, and then to be able to contextualize our culture for the good of God. And, And that's amazing, and I love it, and I love hearing the stories around our city. And when I meet someone who doesn't know Jesus, I I try to 
try to change, I try to turn them, you know? And it's great. And, and that's one of the things that an elder must be, hospitable. Second, he says, a lover of good. Okay, there's a lot of things that, you know, we could freak out about. Right? There's a lot of things that don't necessarily always go well. And Bo helps me with this because my natural proclivities is to focus in on the negative. Bo really helps me with this. He's like, Byron, you need to focus in on the good. Focus on the good of what God is doing in people's lives. See, being a lover of good is kind of a prophetic gift because you're able to see into, into the future, see into someone's life, see what God is doing, and then be able to lead them there. It's kind of like, oh, God, you know, instead of focusing on the bad, Lord, this is what you're doing in this life. Thank you so much for that. Lord, this is what you're doing, and they're a gift to me. Being a lover of good is being able to point other people to follow Jesus. Next, he says, self-controlled. Okay? This one's so important that Paul mentions it five times in this short little book of Titus, to be self-controlled. So do you run around doing what you want, when you want, how you want, whatever it is that you want? You have no control. Right? The actual translation here means he must have his wits about him. Okay? So this means that, that strength as a leader does not come from your strength as much as your will. It's emotional health. It's not just physical health, but it's emotional and spiritual health. you got to have your wits about you. You can't just do what you want. Sometimes as a leader, the most important thing that you do is what you don't do. Sometimes as a leader, the most important thing that you say is what you don't say. you got to be self-controlled. For he says, holy, okay, holy. Are you someone who is putting your sin to death? Are you someone who is committed to overcoming sin and temptation in your life? What holiness doesn't mean, it doesn't mean perfect. We're not perfect. You're going to fail. I'm going to fail. I will fail you. You will fail me. That's how this works. What holiness is, is that you're chasing after Jesus with everything you got. You're committed to following him and putting sin to death. Are you holy? It's about progress, not so much about perfection. And then lastly, he says, you need to be disciplined. Okay, disciplined. I know some people say, I don't read my Bible well. So I'm going to go into ministry. That will help. No. Like, I, I want to be a better Christian. So I'm going to become a pastor and work at the church. No, that's not how it works. Some people actually run from their problems and run into the ministry thinking that it's going to make them better. And you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't. It actually does more damage, more harm to that person and to the testimony of that church when you put someone in a position of leadership that they're not qualified to hold. We need to be disciplined, okay? Listen, there are some people who have the best intentions with the worst of character. They do. The best intentions with the worst character. I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care how passionate you are. I don't care how charismatic your personality is. If you're not, if your character is not solid, you're not called to lead. There's one thing that my pastor told me when I was a young Christian, felt called into ministry and being an idiot. He told me this. He said, Byron, passion will take you places that only character can keep you. Passion will take you places that only character can keep you. 
So I see that some, some churches, they put people into leadership. They're like, oh, wow, they're gifted. They're talented. They have great abilities. They can draw a crowd. They got a white smile. Like they, people laugh, and they put that person and say, this church will grow. No, it won't. It actually destroys the person that they put into leadership. It will destroy you. I ran into this early on in our church. Early on, there was five young men that came to me while we were planting. They said, I feel called into ministry. And I looked at them and and their character, and I said, you know what? I don't see it. And I told them, sit down, serve for a while. We'll see what happens. Only two of them are still with us today. And and God bless those other men. I'm not sure where they're at. But character is what matters. So I want you to know, we take leadership at this church very seriously. The people that we put before you as pastors, we take very seriously. So the front door of Redemption Church, wide open, as big as possible. We want anyone and everyone to come into redemption, to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to have an opportunity to repent of their sins, and then to live a new life in Jesus. That's what we want. Wide door. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you believe, welcome to redemption. Okay? When, you, when you step into volunteering, it gets a little bit smaller. You have responsibilities like showing up and checking your email, things like that, you know? And when we open membership later in the year, the window's going to get really, really small. You're going to have roles. You're going to have responsibilities. You're going to be actually a part of the body. You're going to serve a specific purpose. Then there's deacons, and then there's first-tier leadership, and then there's an elder. As you go up, you lose your rights, And when you get to the very top, we take this position very seriously because here's the truth. It's that Satan hates you. He hates you. And he wants to do anything that he can to take you out. So who do you think he's going to go for first? The leaders. If he can get them, he can get you. You're going to be, as a leader, taking shots You're going to be taking shots left and right because you're taking shots for being the one who calls the shots. So if there's a kink in your armor, then exposes the whole troops. There's times, guys, that God leads me through through severe moments of depression and doubt before he moves us into a season as a church. Sometimes I wake up at 3 a.m. with a name and in prayer. And then that person texts me later in the week and tells me what they're going through. As a leader, God leads you before he moves to the the church through a season. He does. And so if your character isn't in a place to be able to sustain that, then you're not called. And the most loving thing that I can do is tell you no. Work on your character. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in you before he works through you. Because character Character matters the most. Paul closes it out with this final point. He moves from your character into your convictions, okay? I want you to see this, that nowhere in this text on what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be an elder, what it means to be a mature believer and leader has anything to do with your abilities. It's not. He doesn't say go after the rich. He doesn't say go after the smartest. Don't go after the, he doesn't say go after the ones with the PhD and the, 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 the business degree or the master's in divinity. No, he doesn't say that. You know what he says? Character and conviction. That's what we're looking for. Character and conviction. So here's, here's one thing I think about. Don't call the trained, train the called. 
find someone who has been called by the Lord and then work with that person to accomplish the ministry for their lives. This is how Paul closed it out. He says, godly convictions. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught as he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. The first thing we need to know, is he, is he devoted to the truth? Trustworthy word as taught. So this, this is God's word. This God's word, this is true, every single bit of it. It's 100% infallible, inerrant, and it is the final rule and authority in the life of the believer. So as a leader, as a Christian, you are a person who is under authority of God's word. We don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate about who God is. He's perfectly revealed it to us through his word. Okay, and so as a, as a leader, as a mature Christian, you are a person who is under the authority of the word. We don't interpret the word by culture. Right? We interpret culture by the word. We don't interpret our, the scriptures by our surroundings. We interpret our surroundings by the scriptures. And so there's two ways in which a Christian can read the Bible. First is a Christian can read it like this. I am an authority over the word. I get to tell it what it says. Surely God doesn't mean that. Nah, I disagree. You're in, you're over authority. You say, I'm reading it, like, hmm, that can't be what it means. If I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. That's archaic, that's outdated. Those people are just a victim of the times. This is devoted to culture, this is devoted to opinion. This is devoted to preference. This is devoted to error. This is not how a Christian reads the scriptures. This is how a Christian reads the scriptures. I'm a man under authority. Lord, you speak, I listen. God, you said it. I might not understand it, but I know that it produces the greatest good and joy in my life. I'll listen. Lord, you are God. I'm just a man. Lord, you are creator. I'm just creation. God, you are an ocean, and I'm just a bottle. Fill me up, Lord. This is how, this is how we are to read the word. See, this word has stood the test of time. This word has gone forth, changed lives, changed cultures, changed histories. Whatever you're thinking, whatever you're reading, whatever your opinions are, in 2,000 years, no one will care. The word of the Lord is forever. If you want to leave a legacy, if you want to live for something of greater purpose than yourself, read the word, do the word. Read the word, do the word. The second thing, the last thing he says is diligent to teach. See, I, 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 don't, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm God's messenger. I am not to be God's editor. That what the Lord says, that's what I say. We need to be people who are diligent to teach. Now, I love my other pastor friends. They're great. Um, and, and it's kind of amazing, though, because I was talking to some of them, and, you know, we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible mainly. Um, kind of long sermons. Maybe you're feeling that right now. Um, uh, and, and they're like, people don't want to hear that. Right? Just get them in, get them out, get them on with their day. Like, they, they don't really want to hear that. All that stuff about the Bible 
And you know what I found? Is the opposite is true. I've found that people really do want to know what the Bible says. That people really want to know who Jesus is. People really want to know, does he offer any hope? Does he offer any change for my life? What does the Bible say? And then just give them the Bible and just give them Jesus. See, the greatest privilege of my life is to be able to stand on this stage, open this word, and then just give you Jesus. Like, that's all I want. So every week, I got one sermon, Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's all I got. And you know what? He keeps changing lives, which is why we must be diligent to teach the word of God. See, I got the greatest job in the world. I get to stand on this stage. I get to proclaim the glory of God for the good of others every single week. I love, I love what I get to do. Now, am I a perfect man? No. I am not a perfect man. But I am making progress. And I am a persevering man. See, I don't tell you all this to garner sympathy, but I do want you to see the sacrifice that your pastors make to be able to serve you, to love you. I want you, to, I want you to understand. I want you to see that. And so I believe that God is wanting to do amazing things in our church, and we're just getting started and seeing everything that he wants to do, which is why this is so important that we hold firm to the word of God and that we love others in the way God has loved them first. And so... I want to leave you with one final thought as we close, is that Jesus had 11 men that were his disciples. If you profess faith in Jesus, you are a disciple. Those 11 men changed the world as leaders. A disciple is a follower, and a follower is a leader. You may not ever be a pastor, but you are called and chosen by God to serve someone somewhere. So if you're married, serve your family. Lead your family. If you're single, serve and lead your friends. If you call redemption home, serve, love, and lead your church. And together, we will lead this city to Jesus. Amen? Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at The Gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are always welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.